Hey, it's JC. And Jesse. And Ken. And, and this, this is, is Inside, Inside Loudon. Really happy to have you. We are at Morven Park, home of former Governor Westmoreland. Stunning mansion, Greek Revival, 1820. Jesse, you got a cool fun fact for us? Yeah. Of course so you do. This so man, this mansion is absolutely gorgeous. Everything is original in here. It's 20,000 square feet, five staircases, 18 fireplaces. It's, it's stunning. So we're in a really cool place, but who is our really cool guest? Really cool guest. would like to welcome Sam Anthony Lucania. Sam is TEDx speaker, author, fitness trainer. Yes. Uh, more importantly, he's uh, an overdose survivor, and that's kind of what we want to get into today, your story, your background, um, your path to lead us here today, and you've got a cool story about actually walking up the path, and I'd like <laughs> to right. hear that. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me, and um, you know, it's, it's great, and I say that uh, it's never too late to turn your mess into a message, and uh, unfortunately, I've experienced uh, a lot of dark times, but if I can use any of that darkness to offer some light and hope to somebody else, then you know, everything that I've went through is absolutely worth it, so thank you guys for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for coming. Um, so why don't you just start from the beginning, Sam? I know a little bit about your story. Obviously, you're an overdose survivor, but why don't you just start from the beginning and tell us some um, um, how you ended up here today, still alive. Awesome. In the mansion. In 20,000. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so right. So it started in Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah. So it all started in Jersey. That's where I'm originally from. And uh, it's all about to come full circle for me. So um, I started telling my story in schools uh, a few years ago. And I'm getting ready to go back to Union High School in New Jersey, which is where I graduated from. And a lot of the things that you're about to hear me talk about, you know, mm -hmm. that's where it all started for me. Uh -huh. um, because nobody makes a decision and you know to say that I'm gonna grow up and I'm gonna be an addict one day you know I'm gonna throw away my entire life for this little bottle of pills or this bottle of alcohol um, it usually starts at a very young age from uh, an insecurity or a trauma and that's how it started for me uh, there was no trauma I took my uh, first drink when I was 12 years old and when people hear that there's a lot of assumptions you know uh, he probably came from a broken home his parents must be divorced he was probably neglected or abused uh, addiction runs in the family uh, and the truth is none of that applied to me you know I was raised in a good home there was no neglect no abuse uh, no addiction to my family and my parents are still married to this day um, but the thing that was going on with me is I was full of anxiety and uh, it's a term that's widely used today and I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to and for me that anxiety came in a lot of factors everything made me anxious waking up going to school talking to girls talking to anybody I didn't have social skills back then because they didn't teach it in the classroom and it wasn't being taught to me when I was at home and uh, I quickly learned um, a lot of it through learned behavior um, from watching other people that if I'm not feeling a certain way about myself I can do something about that and that thing that I did was take a drink. And I took that first drink when I was 12 years old from my parents' liquor cabinet. <clears throat> and for no other reason than curiosity, and I didn't like the way I was feeling inside, and from what I've seen on TV and from what I've seen from other people, I know that will change that. Just from TV. That's well, it. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of, I, I talk about learned behavior a lot when I do community events and stuff like that. And it comes in both fashions. It comes in positive learned behavior. It also comes in negative learned behavior. And it comes from the music that we listen to and the people we surround ourselves with, the places that we go, and the TV that we watch. Yeah. And uh, today, social media. Take me through social that first drink. Take me through that 12-year-old first drink. 
Uh, that 12 year old first drink, uh, I can't really say that I knew I was an alcoholic from the start, um, but I do know that it made me not feel. That's really the only way I could say it. Um, because as you listen to the progression of my drinking and using history, you're gonna learn that um, I really like to be down and out. I like opiates, I like benzos, I like alcohol. If I couldn't get my hands on those things, I would gladly take some Adderall or cocaine. But at the end of the day, it was never about going up, it was never about going down. I just didn't wanna be right here anymore. And at 12 years old, I realized that I can take something and not be right here anymore. But over time, I learned that it was a very temporary solution to a very long-term problem, so. So how did it evolve? So it started at 12, you had your first drink. So where did you go from there? It evolved with what I refer to as gateway behavior. And I'm sure we've all heard the term gateway drugs, Um, but I personally believe that the gateway drug is the first one that you try. For some people it's weed, for somebody else it's a prescription pill. Um, If the first time you ever get high is off a line of cocaine, guess what? Cocaine's your gateway drug. Could it be vaping? Absolutely, I say that now because you'd be surprised. Uh, When I do my student assemblies, Um, I always tell a a quick little piece of my story and then I say, uh, I'm going to share some more experiences with you, but first I want to learn about some of yours. And I ask, who here is already vaping something? Who here has taken their first drink? And whether I'm speaking to an audience of 100 or 1,000, shockingly hands go up in front of their peers, in front of their administration, in front of their teachers, coaches, and principals. And, uh, you know, I use that to segue later on when I'm talking about gateway behavior to say everybody that raised their hand when I said, who here is drinking and vaping, guess what? That's your gateway drug. It's the first one that you tried. Um, But more importantly, kind of like what initiated this topic right here, it's that behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, it was the um, behavior of I don't like the way I feel, I wanna do something about it. But the problem is that that behavior is progressive in nature Um, Progressive in two ways. One, what I'm willing to do to get it. And two, what I need to get it. So the behavior I'm willing to uh, exhibit and also um, whatever uh, variable being the alcohol or the substance that's going to get me to that place. So it started with drinking, then it was cigarettes, then it was pot, then it was pills, then it was cocaine, um, and so on and so forth. Now, is this sort of you by yourself or did you kind of have a group that joined in and that kind of became your thing with your buddies or was it like a closet thing? So both. Um, So the very first time I took that drink, it was me and one of my friends and um, we did it in my mom's basement. Uh, There was a liquor cabinet down there and it was unsecured and it's just not something that people thought about back then. So it's no, uh, nothing against my parents. It's just they never thought for one second that sweet, innocent, 12-year-old little Sammy was going to go down there and take a drink. That's interesting because ours was in the pantry on the top shelf, Uh right? (laughs) But yeah, we quickly learned it's like get the step stool and then you can get up on the second shelf and then yeah I don't yeah. think we don't think like that as parents I don't think that's changed my parents either. were completely different because my father is an alcoholic and so he said alcohol which he actually died from but he said alcohol runs in the family I'm going to put the house on lockdown anytime oh, and I, I mean we all went through like our party times and of course like as a high schooler I would sneak a drink every now and then and um, it would be in lockdown. I would be grounded for a week if he found a beer in the backyard. I remember I hid a beer in a pile of wood and that beer was sitting on my counter like five minutes later. He, I don't know if he had, I mean, the cameras weren't a thing back then, but he was know, watching right? me. I don't yeah. know what, but it was always a big thing in our house. He, he right. did not want us to go down that path. So Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but yeah, back to the question of was it a group thing or was it isolated? It was a little bit of both. It started off as uh, you know kind of a group thing. So for me, I didn't really fit in anywhere. Um, I wasn't academic. Uh, I wasn't athletic. Uh, I wasn't smart. I wasn't funny. I wasn't handsome. I wasn't popular. So the people that I really latched onto were the ones that would accept me for pretty much anything. Um, it, I probably was about eight or nine years old. Uh, it was breaking windows at uh, what we thought was an old abandoned factory. You know, I didn't really want to do it, but it was summertime. It was hot. Seemed like a good thing to do at the time. And uh, you know, some of me in the neighborhood boys said, "Hey, let's go down to this old factory and throw some windows and break them." Um, I was terrified, but when I threw the rock and the window broke, and they gave me acceptance and affirmation for that that was part of that gateway behavior because you wouldn't have been able to convince me when I was an eight or nine year old boy breaking windows with the neighborhood kids that 20 years later I'd be breaking and entering to feed an oxycon habit you know yeah. so that's that, that progression of you know the yeah, disease scary. And, so tell us how you got to that point where you're breaking and entering to get oxycon so um, you know continued on through high school um, with uh, smoked weed at 14, uh, got introduced to my first prescription pill at 16. I had surgery on my ankle, took one pill, fell in love, rode away. And, what was that? Uh, Percocet. Percocet. I had uh, two screws put in my ankle after I tore some ligaments doing a pickup football game with some friends. And doctor sent me home with a bottle of Percocet, took one pill, 30 minutes later, fell in love. I'm a pretty smart guy. If one is good, two must be better. Uh, so I went back and I took another one. Um, but I learned over time that more is not better. More just means more. And uh, eventually more would almost take my life and my freedom. Um, after high school, um, I got introduced to uh, cocaine. So I, um, my, the title of my student talk is Your Life is Full of Not Yets. And after high school, I had a lot of not yets. And growing up, I had not yets. And, uh, you know, I'll give you a couple examples because I can see you nodding your head, but you might, you're kind of looking like, well, what do you mean by not yets? Well, um, what, growing up, I watched my dad smoke cigarettes. And honestly, my dad looked really cool when he would smoke cigarettes. And I wanted to be cool too, but I told myself I'm never going to smoke cigarettes. Not yet. When I started smoking cigarettes, I saw what I thought were the popular kids in high school smoking weed. Well, I wanted to be popular too, but I told myself I'm never going to smoke weed. Not yet. When I started smoking weed, I told myself I'm never going to do hard drugs. And so everybody sees where I'm going with this. After high school, doing cocaine was not yet for me. And uh, the few friends that I had left started doing it. That meant if I was going to continue to be accepted by these people, that I was probably going to do it too. And I told myself, I'll just do it once. Um, it's very easy to tell yourself that you're going to do something just once before you do it. But unfortunately, when it comes to certain drugs, once whatever one is gets into your body, uh, you kind of lose the ability to control when you're going to take your next one and when you're going to take your last one. Mm. Um, uh, cocaine actually led to my first arrest as an adult. Uh, I'd gotten in a little bit of trouble as a juvenile, um, but I got arrested for the first time. I was probably 19 or 20 years old um, for possession, and that was up in New Jersey. And uh, I figured all my problems had to do with where I was. My problem was New Jersey. My problem was the people I was hanging out with. If I can get away from here, I'll be just fine. Um, so I left New Jersey, and I moved down to Virginia, where I still live today. And the problem with that is everywhere I went, there I was. Couldn't run away from myself. It's always going to follow. Yeah, it sure did. And uh, I moved in with the first girl that showed me any attention. <laughs> and uh, that's when I learned that somebody in her house had a prescription uh, for painkillers. I was in the kitchen one day, and I opened up the wrong cabinet. Uh, the bottle was there. Uh, I remembered what those pills did to me when I was 16 years old. And I took one. And the same thing happened. I went back a half hour later, I took another one. Uh, the next day I took a couple more. And then that's what kind of streamlined uh, what would become the nail in my coffin of going through other people's medicine cabinets. 
and I'm a huge advocate now when I go out and I do talks in community and talk to parents uh, and community advocates and leaders about proper storage, proper disposal, because it's unfortunate but true, but I can't tell you how many homes that I've been in where I found unsecured narcotics in the most random places. And unfortunately, you guys are sitting around at a table and I am the face of addiction. Yeah. It's not always toothless. It's not always homeless. It's not always covered in track marks. Um, you know, sometimes it's a guy that grew up a pretty normal life like me. And I can assure you, all the people that I took pills from had no idea that I suffered from the disease when I took them. Right. So. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Do you think people are, are listening to your message and adults and you're talking about, you know, locking away your medicines? Like, how do you know or what's your feedback from your talks that it's working? And does that keep you going or you're just, this is my path and I'm going to keep going regardless? Like, what's your motivation now to keep going? Well, if we've seen through anybody that's followed a, a trending post on social media, there's always going to be you know, somebody that has a valid point and then somebody that disagrees with it and somebody that loves it and somebody that hates it. And at the end of the day, I know there's going to be people that hear what I have to say and could care less or think that I'm not the one that should be delivering the message. And then there's people that have messaged me saying that I've saved their life. And that's the person that I'm still here for. Right. I'm not going to yeah. let the other critics, you know, bring me down because I know that I have a purpose here. Um, but, you know, I have people say, you know, wow, I've never thought about that. You know, you have to think of all the people that are in your home, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your babysitters, your coworkers, contractors, um, nannies, realtors, you never, maids, you never know when somebody has the disease. So to leave a bottle of Percocet just laying in the junk drawer or on the kitchen counter, right. probably not the best idea, you know? And then there's the flip side of that. I'll have some parents say, well, my kid doesn't like drugs. They would never do that. Okay, your kid likes money, right? Unfortunately, those, pigs are, those pills are top dollar on the streets these days. So um, it's very easy for a kid to get bullied into taking those pills so somebody else could profit from sure. it. You know, so there's a lot of things that go into it. And uh, there's a lot of people in a lot of different places higher up than me on Capitol Hill and stuff like that, you know, trying to put a lot of regulations into place. Not my strong point. I stay out here in the battlefield. I like going into the schools and uh, trying to get these kids when they're young and see if they can learn from my mistakes so they don't have to make their own. So I'm a mother of three young kids I, and um, one who's really challenging um, and addiction runs in my family. And I guess my biggest fear as a mother is that one of my children will follow this path. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how to prevent it. I can't put a bubble around them. I, you know, there's only so much protection I can do. So what would be your advice as someone who's experienced this path for a mother like me? You're responsible for the effort, not the outcome. You do not have the power to get anybody drunk or anybody sober. You do have the responsibility and the power to lead by a good example and make sure that you're putting, uh, you know, all the positive influences and uh, consequences in place to say, this is the way that I've lived my life. This is the way I want you to live your life. But if and when that time comes where they take a drink or take a drug and it gets out of control, you need to be able to lay your head down at night knowing that you did everything that you possibly could within your power to prevent that. Because you're right, you can't put them in a bubble. You know, all my all my relapses, all my trouble, all the people that were close to me, my parents did not have the power to, you know, keep me in jail or keep me out of jail. They didn't have the power to have me overdose or bring me back from it. That was all on me. 
Um, you know, there were a lot of people that had the opportunity to step in and lead by example and say, this is how I'm living my life. This is how you can get out of it. But at the end of the day, the decision was still mine. Sam, talk about consequences. My consequences? Yeah. There were a lot of them. Um, starting, uh, you heard me say the first time I was arrested as an adult was um, when I was about 19 or 20, and that was for uh, possession of cocaine. And then that going through people's medicine cabinets and that prescription pill addiction would lead to my second arrest in 2006. And um, that was for prescription fraud. And again, that was right here in Loudoun. Uh, doctor wrote me a script for a few Percocet. I was not happy with the quantity that he wrote it for. So smart me, I figured it's just a copy of a piece of paper. It's not a really big deal. Well, apparently there's an entire task force assigned to prescription fraud because wow. it is a big deal. And yeah. that's right here in this county. And Loudoun's one of the wealthiest counties in the nation. And there's still a lot of people that think we don't have these problems here, but the reality is that we do. And um, that led me to my first treatment that was assigned to a uh, intensive outpatient program at Loudoun Mental Health where I met a fantastic counselor named Jen who would become a huge part and is still a huge part of my life almost over 14 years later. And uh, I wasn't ready to get and stay sober that time. Uh, but it did plant a lot of seeds. Unfortunately, those seeds needed to be watered with vodka for the next several years, but yeah. it did plant some seeds. Um, and then I think what we're really trying to get to is fast forward to uh, 2015, so almost 10 years later, uh, in and out of the program of 12-step recovery multiple times, multiple relapses, uh, multiple feelings hurt, multiple trusts broken, and um, I'm personal training at a uh, local gym in Ashburn, and I had a personal training client and I had relapsed at this point. Um, I should probably actually backtrack a little bit to 2013 because in 2013 was when I kind of got out of control with my drinking and my drug use. And uh, that's when I actually had an overdose on prescription pain pills. I've kind of fast forwarded too much there. Uh, my wife came home, it was just a Friday night and uh, she found me unconscious, unresponsive. And I ended up in the ICU uh, at Loudoun with a tube down my throat. Um, keeping me alive because I uh, was trying to get out of right here. Wasn't trying to kill myself that night. Um, just wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Just didn't know how to wake up without it and go to bed without it. And uh, that's how strong the disease is because I got a year of sobriety after that overdose and my confidence turned to cockiness. And after one year, I told myself, you know what? I don't really need this 12-step recovery stuff anymore. Look at me, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm healthy. My relationship with my wife is fantastic. Uh, I'm getting some respect back in my community. I'm making new friends. I'm making good money. Um, so, you know, all that stuff that happened in the past was all circumstantial. Um, I'm sure that I can have just one. And unfortunately, those are my famous last words before every relapse is I'll have just one. And as I slowly started getting away from counseling and away from going to church and away from 12-step recovery and my mentorship and my sponsor, you know, all those tools that were handed to me as a way to live life one day at a time and to fix the problems that were in here that I was trying to cover up with drugs and alcohol, as I slowly started to turn my back on those things, that's when I uh, was getting closer and closer to taking a drink and I took it. And um, that's when I had that personal training client um, tell me that she had a procedure done and um, that there was some uh, Oxycontin in her house. And I had been to her house before, we were pretty good friends, and uh, I knew there, were, there was a uh, spare key to her home. So I get a little emotional when I talk about this. Sure. Especially in my own backyard. Um, and I'm sitting around work one morning and I didn't have any pills and I needed them. 
And do you notice my language there? I needed them. This is way past want. Uh, the party stopped a long time ago and I didn't know anybody selling them. I didn't know any doctors that I can go to and get them legitimately. But my disease started to tell me where there was some. It also started to tell me that, you know what, Sam? Just go over there, you know where the key is. Even if they find out, they're probably just gonna try to get you some help anyway. Just go. Uh, and I drove over to the house and I sat in the driveway and I started thinking about all the ways that this could possibly play out. Are the neighbors gonna see me going into the house uninvited and call the cops? Is her husband, who's a law enforcement officer, going to be home and shoot oh, the intruder going into his house? Right. But on that morning, probably about 9 or 10 a.m., stone cold sober, that disease of addiction and the power of that pill bottle told me it was a good idea to go in that house and take those pills. And I did. And uh, I didn't know, like so many people do these days, that they had a camera in their home. And when they saw me on camera going through their things, they called the cops on me, and rightfully so. And um, I was sitting around work one morning, and her husband comes in to my job, walks into my office, and... Uh, says, you know what, we're worried about you. We think that you were in our house. And I broke down right away because I knew I, I, I couldn't do this anymore on my own. I knew I messed up. I knew I needed help. I knew the, the way I was living my life wasn't gonna continue to work. And um, I remember he looked at me in the eye and he said, I don't wanna ruin your life, but my wife is upset and she wants to go to the cops. And I reached out to shake his hand and say, I'm sorry. And that's when he looked at me and said, don't you dare threaten my wife. I knew right then and there he was not there to get me help. Not the kind that I wanted, at least. And um, I drove home and uh, called my wife on the way home, very upset. When I got home, she uh, started crying. She didn't really know what to do with that. Right. And I got a phone call from my coworker saying, Sam, there's a couple detectives here for you. I said, you know what? Send them to my house because I'm not coming back there. Uh, they showed up and they took me to jail. And I remember um, <laughs> when I was in the back of their car on my way to uh the Loud Detention Center, thinking to myself, you know what, I bet you this is all a game. I'm on an episode of Punked right now. Because when I get down there, my client's husband's gonna be waiting there because all cops know each other, they're all friends, right? And uh, they're gonna pull me aside in a separate room and take my handcuffs off and say, Sam, do you see how serious this is? Do you see how bad this could have gotten? Um, but that didn't happen. You know, when I got down to Loudon ADC, um, he wasn't there. What was there was a room where I was told to go in and get naked and put on the orange jumpsuit. Uh, what was there was a magistrate that set my bond. And then the detectives asked me if I wanted to make my phone call. And uh, that's when I knew this was not a game. Um, but that's also when I made a decision that uh, it's time to give up this lifestyle and it's time to surrender. And it's time to step up and be the man that my wife deserves to have in her life. And it's time to uh, step up and go back to all those things that helped you get that one year of sobriety. And that's exactly what I did. You mentioned surrender. Surrender to who or what? What were you surrendering Surrendering to? to myself. Because I was in such denial and lying to everybody, including myself, that you know what? I don't need anybody's help. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I can handle this. Um, I needed to surrender to me. You know, I, I, I had tried to go to recovery before for other people, um, you know, just to pay lip service. The very first time I ever went to 12 step recovery is to get my girlfriend off my back. Um, that didn't work. Like I said, it planted seeds, but sure. I needed to surrender to myself. That's the only person I needed to be upfront and honest with. Once I started getting upfront and honest with the fact that the way I was living my life was not working and that I could not do it alone, 
then I was able to start earning the trust back of everybody else. So I have a question. We all know somebody who has an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I explained before that my father had an addiction. We didn't know what to do. Um, you know, we've watched one too many episodes of Intervention. They always say the person has to hit rock bottom. How do you help somebody, or can you help somebody? Do they have to do it on their own? It feels so alienating to just push them away and say, you need to do this on your own. And it is. And honestly, I hate the term rock bottom. Um, You know, rock bottom is what you make it. You know, a kiddie pool and an Olympic-sized pool both have a bottom. Which one would you rather climb out of? You know, I know plenty of people that got in a fight with their wife, were asked to sleep on the couch, and that was their bottom. And then there's somebody like me that overdoses and almost dying isn't enough. You still go back out again. You know, my bottom could have stopped a long time ago. It could have stopped when I got arrested as a 14 year old in high school for selling weed. It could have stopped, um, you know, after that first, the first arrest as an adult. But, you know, bottom is what you make it. But to really answer your question, um, again, you're responsible for the effort, not the outcome. And um, Daryl Strawberry, who's in uh, long term recovery and does a lot of speaking as well. I was listening to a um, uh, episode that he was on and said something really well and I don't know if this is his original statement or not but I'll give him credit for it because that's where I heard it um, he said you need to love the person but you do not need to tolerate them you need to show them love but you don't need to tolerate the behavior um, so you don't necessarily need to um, kick them out of the house but you also need to let them know that if and when you're ready I'm here for support because I can tell you from being there myself we, and by we, I'm talking about those that suffer, whether it be from alcoholism or something else, feel like we're the only ones. We feel like nobody would ever understand. We feel like there's nobody that would understand the fact that I'm so depressed that I don't want to get out of bed. Nobody's going to understand that I've tried to put this bottle down so many times and I just, I just physically cannot do it. Um, but once you get into uh, a room of peers, just like yourself, whether uh, you know it's Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or Smart Recovery or Celebrate Recovery, and you surround yourself with people that say, dude, I get it, I've been there too, it's this huge weight off your shoulders because you're like, wow, I've been walking around this earth thinking that I'm the only one and there's millions of others out there just like me. So how do you keep carrying that with you though? Because you hear so many stories of relapse and... You know, I have a friend right now that was like seven months and it just seemed like, oh man, he was doing so well. And then boom. I mean, just recently, even if you're like a tabloid gossip person, Mm -hmm. Ben Affleck, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel so bad for him, but like his ex-wife, Jennifer Garner, used to say, it's like, you know, I love him. You don't need to hate him because I don't hate him, but he has to fix this. Like we can't fix this, you know, but... You're surrounded by buddies, you're doing 12 step, you get out, everything's great. How do you keep that going? So my wife and I were having a conversation about this the other day and my wife's a medical professional, she's a a nurse. And there's a lot of controversy in the rooms of recovery as to whether we are recovered or we're always recovering. Here's my take. For today, if I had to introduce myself, I would say that I'm recovered. That does not mean that nothing bad's ever gonna happen again. So I'll use this illustration. If I break my leg and you put me in a cast, for the six weeks that I'm in the cast, I am recovering. Once the cast comes off and I'm done with physical therapy, I'm as recovered as I'm gonna get. That does not mean that I'm immune to ever breaking my leg again. For today, I'm not suffering from the disease. I'm not suffering from the anxiety, from the compulsion, from the desire, but 
I also know what I did yesterday to stay in recovery and to stay sober will not keep me sober today. It's a lot like taking a shower. You know, you guys all showered this morning, I hope. The shower that you took today. I did not. (laughs) The shower that you took today is not going to keep you clean tomorrow or probably benefit you guys to do it tomorrow and the next day. And the same thing with my recovery. So most of the time, and this is my personal experience and from the experience I've seen of other people that have slipped up or relapsed or went back out, whatever verbiage you want to use, it's the same story. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped right. calling my sponsor. Yeah. I stopped doing this. I stopped doing that. I started hanging out with old friends again. I started going back to this place. Uh, and that's the trend. So I know that I had to change a lot of things about myself. Once I fixed what was inside, just doing a geographical cure wasn't enough. Um, but that also meant that I had to do little things like change the music that I listened to and the music, I, uh, the, the movies that I watched. I can't call sure. myself sober and refer to myself as a spiritually guided person and then leave you guys, go get in the car and listen to some rapper, you know, sure. selling crack on the radio. Or go home and watch reruns of Scarface and watch Al Pacino snort comical lines of cocaine. Like, I just can't do that anymore. So I don't because music and movies have a huge influence on, you know, me personally. So So you say, well, you use the term, I'm recovered. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that sort of in that world, people would debate you saying that. Obviously, you're comfortable saying that. Um, So are you still going to meetings, are you still participating in that or not? Yes, I've made recovery in my life. You know, I still have a sponsor. Um, I still go to meetings, not as frequently as some do, um, but I've been told that there's always something I can do for my sobriety. There's gonna be times that I can't get to a phone to call my sponsor. There's gonna be times that I can't pick up a book and read it. There's gonna be times that I can't go to a meeting. Um, But there's one thing that I always have access to, and that's prayer. And I've learned that sometimes the only thing between me and my addiction, me and my struggles, me and my pain is uh, gonna be God. And I've held on to that. Um, There's some people I know that go to three meetings of recovery a day, and they're miserable. There's some people I know that go to one meeting a month, and they're on fire. Um, there's a lot of different paths to recovery. Sure. Um, no one peer group has the market on it. No one, um, you know, 12 step program. There, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, um, I'm a motivational speaker. Every time that I go into a school, it's basically a meeting for me all day long. And then the following days, I get hundreds of messages from students and teachers and parents where I'm talking about recovery and answering questions about addiction and stuff like that. And then on my days off, I'm sitting here with you fine folks talking about, guess what? Recovery. And on a day that I'm driving to New Jersey because I'm getting ready to go to my old high school and talk about recovery, I'll be listening to a podcast about, guess what? recovery. Um, so there's a lot of different things that I can do. Yes, I'm still very involved because I know every time I've tried to get away from it because my confidence turns to cockiness and I get this, I got it mentality. I fall down flat on my face every time. And honestly, guys, I'm tired of falling. Sure. So your wife has played a pretty prominent role in this process. So tell us about her, your family and what their role was and where you are today. I'd be dead literally and figuratively if not for my wife. So uh, thank you, Rachel Lucania, for just being the rock and being there for me for everything that I've wanted to do in life. Um, She was huge. She um, found me when I overdosed and gave me CPR, and she's the first voice that I heard when I woke up in the ICU, handcuffed to a gurney with tubes down my throat. Uh, She uh, visited me when I was in jail, and she wrote me letters every day. 
Um, I told her that I wanted to write a book, and she actually co-authored it with me. So people can read it and understand that not only can the individual recover, but so can the family, because there's a lot of broken marriages and relationships over this. But um, when worked out together, you guys can recover as a couple too. Like after all the after the overdose, dude, I needed counseling. I needed therapy. So did my wife. That was our individual components. But then we had this relationship that needed mending. So we actually did couples therapy too. You know, there was a lot of things that she was willing to do because she took those vows that we took seriously um, that I think a lot of other people don't, or they just throw their hands up. Uh, My parents, again, responsible for the effort, not the outcome, they were always there for me. Uh, They hated watching the pain that I went through. They hated watching my suffering. They hated watching me mess up, Um, but they always loved me. All they ever wanted to do was for me to get well, and uh, today they're two of my biggest fans. This is a fascinating conversation, Sam. Tons of good information, especially um, for the kids. I've got young kids. You've got young kids. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Um, Sam, how can people learn more about you? And you do a lot of speaking. You do uh, counseling. You do personal training. So um, tell us how our listeners can reach out and contact you if they're interested in some of the things you're doing right now. Because I think... You can help a lot of people. Thank you. Uh, so the easiest way is just going to be my website, samanthonyspeaks.com. Uh, all my social media tags are at the bottom. Um, I respond to every single DM that comes through. So when I'm done in student assemblies, I always give out my social media because that's how kids like to communicate yeah, these totally. days. So you're on um, Instagram, Facebook. Dude, I'm even on TikTok, okay? <laughs> no, don't say but, that. But no, check it out though. But I'm not dancing, okay? I'm doing what I do on my sure. other platforms yeah. on TikTok. And I actually, yeah, yeah, and I have kids that like, they see that I have a TikTok account in a student assembly and they're like, how many followers do you have? So the first question I ask is number one, what does it matter? I'd rather have a thousand (laughs) followers that love what I do for being authentic than a million followers that like what I do because I conform to what society wants me to do on that platform. So um, it's an opportunity for me to reach people on that platform for being me. I'm not on there to dance. So where does, so you do a lot of school stuff, high school stuff. Um, like where do adults maybe get to hear you speak live? So uh, if you're in Loudoun, it's going to be, um, what do we got? I, March 12th at 7 p.m. at the Cascades Library. It's in conjunction with uh, the Prevention Alliance of Loudoun. Uh, it's going to be 7 p.m. Cascades Library. It's called Beyond Academics. You're going to hear from um uh, Jennifer Wall and her team of student assistant uh, services and I'll be sharing a little bit of my testimony as well but oftentimes when I do student assemblies they'll also do a parent talk whether it's a coffee talk in the morning or an evening community event uh, where parents can come and I have a little bit of a different spin that I put on things mm-hmm. and just takeaways you know good practices in the home uh, a little bit more detail on the learned behavior and stuff like that um, so that's always an opportunity as well I've been on um, multiple different podcasts that which are listed right. on my website uh, and then if anybody ever has any questions uh, they could always email me or reach right. out on social media as well so in closing you just said you just said takeaways what what's the one biggest takeaway that you want the listeners to walk away with today I stumped him I no. know <laughs> I want to make sure that I, I have several I want to make sure that I give it a thought-filled answer I've learned sure. not to just respond automatically yeah. for the sake of giving a response don't be afraid to give up the person that other people think you should be for the person that you know you are 
deep down inside. There's too many people changing the way that they feel about themselves and the person that they're trying to present to the world, whether it's in public or on social media, because of the opinions of other people. Everybody else's voice is already taken. Please go find your own. Say that again. Yeah, that's the best message ever. Say the first part. Especially now. Don't be afraid to give up the person that other people think you should be for the person that you know you are deep down inside. And the reason I say that is I've allowed the opinions of other people to change the way I felt about myself forever. Because of the opinions of others, I've changed the people I hung out with, the places I went, the friends that I kept, and the, uh, the clothes that I wore. Um, until somebody looked at me and said, dude, what somebody thinks about you is none of your business. So I no longer change the way I feel about myself right here because of the opinion of somebody else. I love that. I tell my kids that every day. Yeah. Wholeheartedly stand behind that. Well, thanks for sharing today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's been therapeutic, I feel like. Thank you. Appreciate it. Do we owe Sam any money for the therapy session? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'd hold back tears a few times. This is good. Thanks, Sam. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me out. Thank you.